0: Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Hey, welcome to Manalyzing, where men talk about what men don't talk about. I'm Garth Haslam, in this interview I'm talking with Mark Bartholomew, he's a, he's a good man, he's an army vet and he has a story to tell, one that keeps him up at night and one that he is dealing with in the best way that he knows how to do and one that I can understand why that keeps him up, it uh, tears me up to 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 hear of or think of his story as well. It's something he has to carry, and it's something that he needs to talk about, uh, like the rest of us, in order to heal himself. Mark has dedicated himself to uh, putting himself around other people who also need to be healed, and that's, that's all of us, frankly. You know, you and I know that's all of us. But Mark is willing to deal with his demons' brokenness and darkness by helping others deal with theirs. I admire that in Mark. He's a good man, and uh, we all have a great deal to learn from from a dude like this. Without further ado, here's the interview. Mark, uh, I know nothing about you. Here's what I know about you, Mark. Your name is Mark, and you're a member of a father's rights group. That's what I know about you. Okay. You and I, you and I go back about one minute, so it's not like we've been best friends for a thousand years. <laughs> Tell me more about you. Uh, let's, let's start when you were little, what would you care? Where, what, first off, where do you live presently? Where did you grow up? Who, who's Mark?
1: Um, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, Rocky Mount, uh, which is a tiny little town. And I'm currently living in a suburb of Raleigh called Nightdale. You know, I'm 43 years old. I'm a disabled combat veteran. Uh, I spent time in Iraq as a combat medic and, uh, I'm a dad to four kids
0: and, mm, that that gives you uh plenty of of mileage on uh on your body and your soul yeah uh, you've uh you've probably got the p t s d that you probably can't talk about um or can you where let's let's go let's go to your military experience
1: um, you know i i spent eight years in the reserves. I was deployed for 17 months. I uh, spent 13 months in combat. I was in Sadr City.
0: Sadr City.
1: Yeah, it's uh, one of the areas in, in Baghdad. I got moved around Iraq a lot. If you look at the map, the little triangle of death, that's where I used to hang out.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're, you're the triangle of death guy. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty sure you didn't die, but I'm sure there, there are stories you can
1: tell. Or can't, as the case may be. You know, I came back. I served as a combat medic my entire time. That that was what I went in to do. That's what I wanted to do. I came back, and immediately I was pulled as we were out-processing. When we out-process, you go to a big gym, and you go basically table to table to table. And they had given us new uniforms when we got back, but they didn't give us new boots. And the lady at the psych table happened to notice my boots, had a bunch of kicked on blood. And she pulled me out and she was like, hey, I I see your boots. And she asked me a few questions. And I was like, yeah, as a medic, I I spent a lot of time doing my job because I I was a field medic, a combat medic. I I went out with the guys. And uh, she sent me over to psych. And immediately they arranged for me to be in contact with the VA. And from there, I got diagnosed with PTSD. And that diagnosis ran for about 10 years by itself until they discovered I had a traumatic brain injury too from one of the IDs. Um, the whole time I have been pretty open about it because I, I see all these guys that I served with that I would give my life for struggling with the same things I'm struggling with. And if I'm not willing to speak up from them by sharing my story, they're more prone to suicide. And I mean, even today, like I, I got a call about two weeks ago from one of the guys I served with and he was struggling with drugs and we talked about it for a little bit. And, you know, I, I set him up with what services I could, but it, it is my way of giving back is speaking out. Right.
0: How many missions would you say, or if. Did you end up coming back with blood on your boots or on your uniform?
1: A lot. There were some times I was out in the desert for six weeks at a time. And that would count as one mission. You know, there are other times that when we were in urban areas, I was running three missions a day and you know, two of those, I'd come back with blood on me. And it wasn't always like our guys. My responsibility was to treat our guys, the enemy. And civilians.
0: So, in, and is that in that order or did it matter?
1: It didn't matter. I mean, if you, if you came to me hurt, I was going to treat you. I mean, granted, our guys got precedence, but, you know, most of the time it was easy enough to triage. A lot of what I, I treated was shrapnel. More so than bullet wounds, but you know they use mainly AKs with 7.62, and those those do make quite a big, you know, quite a hole.
0: And it was your job to how many uh, how many of you medics are there in uh, I don't know the the lingo the squad that you were with.
1: Uh, my unit had approximately 130 people. Out of that, we had five medics. As we progressed, we had three medics actually drop out of the missions due to basically they just couldn't handle it.
0: Couldn't and, handle the the blood, the pain, the gore.
1: Yeah, and uh, they found their ways out. You know, whether it was essentially faking illnesses for two of them, mm-hmm. and then another one he went home for leave because he had some family issues to take care of. And then he went AWOL and he was gone for, I think it was like two months until the police found him and he, he got a plane ticket back and they wouldn't let him be a medic after that. (laughs) Yeah. You're unreliable. So it got down to two of us.
0: That just increased the load on um, the remaining guys. Yeah. Definitely. and more blood on your boots yeah yeah that has to have resulted in a lot of uh memories how how does that how does that affect you right after you got home and what's it doing
1: to you now uh, when I first came home I started drinking and partying and I mean I was 25 years old and I had just survived war I was you know ecstatic in my own way but you know I was Drinking to cope, right? I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't, you know, I, I was not functioning at all. And uh, it basically, like, I would get up and kind of just with blinders on, make it through the day until I could get to the night and drink, because I did not want to go to sleep sober.
0: What What did the drinking do for you?
1: It. It essentially made me pass out so I wouldn't dream. And because I would always dream about the stuff we went through. And there was this little old lady that worked at the VA. Her name was Susan. She was like a grandma, but she kept calling me. And finally, one day I answered. We talked for a while and she's like, Why don't you come in? I'm like, Okay. So I started going in. And uh, that's when I got diagnosed with PTSD. And uh, I stopped drinking at least for a little while. And she uh, they tried all kinds of drugs, so basically, I traded one drug for another, right? During that time, I I moved, I think, four times just bouncing from couch to couch. And I, I tried to go back to school to finish college, and I struggled. And uh, I kept assuming that part was the PTSD, but uh. I finally, it, it was really weird. My girlfriend at the time and my brother were both hounding me to get a dog. And I, I said, you know, no, I don't want a dog because it will be my responsibility. And then they said, well, you know, come on, come on. And I, I was like, okay, you know what? If we can find an adult dog that's well-behaved, body-trained, all of that, I'll agree to it. The next morning at seven o'clock in the morning, my phone
0: rang. Somebody's got a dog for you.
1: Yeah, it's my best friend. He's like, hey, I'm getting divorced, man. And, uh, you know, I knew his relationship was on the ropes, but that night they had decided. He's like, I- I've got to move out and I can't take Daisy with me. And little pit bull mix. And she was always a sweet dog. Pit
0: you know? bulls can be great dogs.
1: Yeah. I was like, ah, oh, you know, I just said this, so I kind of have to go with it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I picked Daisy up about a week later and everybody was like, hey, there's something about you and that dog because I wasn't leaving the house much. And now I had to take the dog out for walks and that kind of thing. And it was helping me reintegrate. Uh, About that time, I I ran into another vet, and he's like, hey, have you tried the vet center? I went, no, what's that? And uh, the vet center is an VA, and it's strictly for combat vets and military sexual trauma victims. But I went and checked into the vet center and started getting therapy through them. The one-on-one was really good, but then I got placed in a group therapy and i i attribute that was saving my life because i went in there the first day and this vietnam vet walked up to me and put his arm around me he's like hey you're drinking you're doing drugs you're chasing women you're trying to destroy yourself in slow motion and and i was like stunned that this man knew all this about me right I, i had literally just walked in the door and uh, I, I looked at him, I was like, how, how do you know this? He's like, brother, we've been doing this for 40 years. You know, we've got you. We will help you get through this. And uh, you know, it, it was an amazing experience to, to get into a group of men that knew what I'd been through. I could openly share what I was going through. And, and they understood, they didn't judge. They didn't like, I, I I had one therapist who quit because I, I started opening up about some of the experiences and she couldn't handle what I'd been through.
0: The therapist couldn't handle what you told her
1: in therapy. Yeah. She's like, I I just can't do it. I'm sorry. You know, my son's in the military and, and it's just too much for me. You know, I'll get you somebody else. I was like, okay sorry (laughs) wow okay (laughs) that meeting those guys really turned my life around and um later on daisy the pit bull became my my service dog Uh you know i've still got her she she doesn't function like a service dog anymore she's 18 19 years old so
0: you know she must be uh, i was gonna say she must be a smaller dog to be that old but she's pit
1: bull yeah she's about 50 pounds uh-huh. but she still rough houses with the other dogs but you know she, her days of running and walking real far are gone right so.
0: yeah well at the end of this uh, interview i'd like to meet uh, daisy okay but so well, let me take. Let me go off on a tangent. Last night, because I'm the structural guy, I dreamed that uh, that somehow I put this uh, massive parking, multi-level parking garage on the back of my house, which is which is funny because I don't have a backyard. I've got I've got about 15 feet of backyard, and then there's some lake. But somehow I put this massive parking garage, and then I invited about a thousand of my uh, favorite friends. And their cars onto the parking garage, and uh, next thing I noticed, there was a uh, there was a structural crack in uh, one of the corners. I was and it had actually fallen down about a half inch. Mm. And I was like, "Oh, this is a structural failure on day one," and I did it. And so the only person I can sue is me. <laughs> uh, so that's that's what that's what nightmares are for me. Uh, you know where I'm going with this. Um, you know if to the extent that you can do it, what are nightmares for you?
1: Um, one particular nightmare that I have is I walk out, you know, I wake up, I walk out into my den and sitting on the couch is this Iraqi woman that her, I treated her, I treated her daughter, I treated her husband because they were driving down the road, and they had the bad idea of trying to pass a military convoy. Um, in the convoy were Air Force, uh, basically Air Force airmen that had been tasked with with security for some of these civilian vehicles that were in it. And I can't fault the kid. he He was young and scared and fresh into iraq mm-hmm. and uh he let their car up with an m16 and we just happened to be in the area so i responded but the mom had shielded the daughter the daughter 16 ish but she had shielded the daughter as any parent's gonna do but the mom got shot through the hand and uh as the daughter was the worst one out of it. So I was trying to keep the daughter alive. I was like, you two are gonna be the parents, you guys are gonna be okay. Like, yeah, you're you're messy right now, but just give me a second. And uh you know, I was treating the daughter and the mom just kept touching me with that hand. <laughs> And I don't know why it like stayed with me so much, but like in my nightmares, I see this mom and she's just like in the house doing normal stuff, but she's got this big gaping hole in her hand still. I'm like, yeah, and it, it just messes with me because I'm like, I don't want those worlds of my, you know, my life with my kids and my wife to mingle with, with the brutality of war. And that kind of is like the psychological part of the the nightmares. And that's right. worse than the ones of, you know, dealing with screaming patients, because that I can logic through. Right.
0: My son has a fairly close friend who is a former Army Ranger. Mm-hmm. I might be getting that wrong. He might be Green Beret, but, um, you know, elevated military. Right. And um, he hung himself a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, you have managed to avoid doing that. You have something that he didn't
1: have. What is that? I think I've got, I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but I I have a purpose because I'm still out here taking care of my kids. I'm still out here fighting for other vets. And and on top of that, I've got a great support system of other vets who I can lean on. And and I think that for a lot of veterans, when we come back, you know, we just went through this huge life-changing experience But we went through it with people that become a family. And overnight, this family kind of drifts apart. Right. Everybody says, hey, you know, let's stay in touch. But typically the first little bit, you don't want to stay in touch because it digs up those memories, those feelings. You want to put those away. Right. And that camaraderie gets put away with those feelings. So you get really isolated, you get really depressed because you don't have a mission. And that's one thing that I think veterans, but guys in general, we need to have is a purpose more so than I get up, I go to work, I come home, I sit in front of the TV. Rinse and
0: repeat. Yeah, I've I've been there and done that too. I especially when i was about your age i was like you know what's the purpose of all this i'm i'm getting up i'm doing my commute i'm doing the boring job i fight my way through traffic to get home and and then i fritter away you know i eat dinner go to sleep over and over and over again where's the meaning where's the value why am i doing this
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, yeah i had my i had my own time of uh, planning out my own suicide and I'm, I'm thinking that probably what uh, you know those guys they would have been there for you at the drop of a hat if you were to go to any of them and say hey I need this. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you do that or and and I guess in your case you went to a different group of guys and and they saved your butt is is that true?
1: Yeah, very very true. And I mean for for me I know that the guys from my unit. Have my back hundred percent, but my role has always been to help them. Oh, it's hard to to flip that role, and and, you know some of them we're really close on a personal level, and we can talk about this stuff, but it it still doesn't change that dynamic hundred percent. But being able to just go into the VA and the Vet Center's cold and say. This is, this is where I'm at. And there have a group of men who are ready to just go, okay, we got you. And, and being able to not only have them help me, but help them and their issues. Too.
0: Yeah. Why? I think I know the answer to this already, but why is that hard to go in there and say, Hey, help me.
1: I mean, all our lives as guys were told, you know, be strong, be independent. You know, these are the values that make you important as a man, and this is this is what makes you essentially valuable to society. but when you you know when you're needing help, it makes it so much harder to to be humble and say, "Hey, I don't know what to do here." you know this isn't just I'm putting together something and I need to watch a YouTube this is I'm lost and I, I need a mentor. And I think one thing that we've given up over the years is having the older generation as a mentor for the younger.
0: I'm gonna say having anybody be a mentor for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think those Vietnam vets, they'll, they've got some years on them by now. They're older than me. Uh, but they have been through some rugged stuff. So I think as former military, you can trust and respect them and respect their advice. Yeah. What and, is it? Go ahead. Oh, I, I
1: was just going to say, they. you know, I lost my dad 12 years ago, I think it is now. And I, I don't have any uncles, but essentially these guys have kind of filled in that role of, you know, being... Essentially, surrogate dads and surrogate uncles to to help guide me and help me navigate a lot of this.
0: My next question would be, how has that helped you? But we already know it saved your life.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: What did it feel like before you went in there? What was going on in your your mind, and your gut, and your soul uh, before you met those guys when uh, putting putting an end to it all was an option? What did that look and feel like?
1: I mean, it's everything else felt out of control, but the thought of of killing myself, you know, in the darkest times, that was the one thing that I could control. How so? Because that was on my terms. Everywhere else, it felt like chaos. And you know that was the one place that i I felt, hey, I can control this. This is a hundred percent me. You know, it's not the medication from the VA. It's not the nightmares. It's not the bad relationship that I got in. It's none of that. It's just me on my own terms.
0: So and it kind of felt, uh, I'm going to say powerful to you that you could own that and have that be your choice and yours alone.
1: And yeah. And I mean, I'd be lying if I said that as soon as I walked into the vet center, everything got better. It was a roller coaster, and I mean that's how healing always is. It's never a straight line. But since two thousand eight, I haven't had any of those ideations of suicide because things have gotten better and better and better. Right. Um, Even even when things even when things haven't been better as far as like situationally, you know, going through the divorce, going through family courts, going through my dad's cancer, all of that, you know never put me back that far to to thinking about suicide because i i've been able to gain perspective and and i feel like i've gained control back over myself in my life
0: yeah i'm gonna say that going through a divorce and going through a uh, loved one's cancer is uh, about as difficult as uh, life can get um and for that you say you that that didn't put you back as far as you had been uh when you were just uh marked with with post-war PTSD mm-hmm. dang um what did that look like uh with your wife uh, going through the divorce and I would imagine that your your wife um you know you you were a uh fairly damaged individual, and your wife dealt with it for however long she did, and I'm sure she has her own damage. Um, What did that look like for you? Uh, Mostly, what did it feel like uh, as you're going through the divorce? I guess before I have you answer that, I'll tell you how it it felt for me. I left, and I went from a house, decent-sized house, with a bunch of uh, screamy, bouncy, noisy kids and interactions all the time everywhere and messes and noise and relationships and talking. And even if it was clean up the house, it was at least you were talking to somebody. Mm -hmm. And then I go to this little basement apartment where it's one bedroom, you know, one small kitchen slash living room that's combined. And that's about the whole, the whole thing. And it was quiet it was there was nobody talking it was just stony deadly silent and i could turn on the radio or turn on the tv and it didn't change the fact that there was nobody in the room Mm -hmm. and the silence killed me yeah uh that's my experience what did yours look like
1: um you know my my relationship with my ex-wife was really toxic Uh
0: uh-huh.
1: um you know we basically everything ended up being my fault no matter if it was or not uh-huh. Uh a, a lot of people in my life were like hey this is not a good relationship for you and uh-huh. it took it took a long time for me to realize that and when it when I realized it, that's when I asked her for the divorce and everything. And, um, you know, basically, once we got to family court, uh, my PTSD, everything was used against me, even though, you know, it had never affected my kid or my parenting. And the only thing it had done has allowed me to be a stay-at-home dad and that was that was taken from me and i I know exactly what you're describing of the silence because when when my son wasn't here when he wasn't with me it was just horrible but i i took that time because you know once i started seeing how many other guys go through the same thing of just becoming a secondary parent, I, I took that time and used it to find myself again. And I, I started doing the things that I loved to do before I got into the relationship. And you know, before I was constantly told, "Oh, you're a monster. You're you're just horrible. You're stupid. Like all the all that nasty stuff that used to be said to me." was suddenly gone and i was like whoa hold on i yeah i went through some some rough times but i i'm a good person and i it took me a took me a while to figure it out but then i started like i i got a gazetteer which is kind of like a mini atlas of the state right i was like oh well i've never been here and i would just and you know, when my son was with my ex-wife i'd go on a fishing trip or. I'd go to a museum there and just kind of reconnect and, um, I'm
0: going to say, get to know yourself a little.
1: Yeah. And I got involved with the organization called the Joel fund, which is a veterans organization and they offer art classes. And uh, I started these writing classes, blacksmithing classes and, I, I I've started painting again, and my my ex wife always told me she's like i'm the I'm the creative one, not you and <laughs> yeah i and you know stupid me, I believed it uh-huh. so like for the longest time like i I didn't do anything creative, but next month I'm gonna be in an art show
0: nice what what flavor of art are you
1: doing uh i'm they're going to have three of my paintings and one of my poems. Nice. So that's, yeah.
0: that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And right. uh, I'm actually getting interviewed for the Joel fund on Friday and they'll be doing, uh, showing one of my digital stories with that.
0: Nice. Digital. What's a digital story?
1: Uh, it's essentially basically a a fancy name for a fancier slideshow so what
0: what would you say is the single most difficult uh, moment of your life that you're willing to talk about?
1: Mm. the The worst moment of my life is i I asked my ex-wife for a divorce on a Wednesday. And uh, that Friday we had a couples counseling appointment and we went in there and we talked and I was like, look, you know, I just don't see us working, but I need us to get to a point where we can communicate and co-parent. Um, we left there, we went to lunch with my mom. And, and, you know, it wasn't great, but we were amiable. Then I was like, hey, you know, I had plans to stop and pick up a few things that we needed at the house, at the store. And my ex-wife took my son with her and was like, hey, you know, I'll I'll take him on home and we'll meet you there. And I took maybe an hour to get home. And when i got home nobody was there uh i waited and waited and i called my brother i was like hey something's weird going on here um it's been a couple of hours she's not answering her phone she's not answering texts you know she and arthur aren't home he was like well you know this was about five five o'clock in the evening and he was like well you know i'll come on by and We'll see what we can figure out. He came by, and uh, about 7 o'clock, he, he's an attorney. He was like, go ahead and call, call the sheriff. Uh, you know, if something's weird going on. So the sheriff came out, and they, they started a missing persons report. And that weekend, that entire weekend, I didn't know what was going on. My ex-wife and my son were gone, and I didn't know if they were alive. I didn't know anything. That Monday, um, that Monday, I went to my attorney's office to because I'd already started the process of the divorce, and I was scheduled to go in anyway. And I told him everything that was going on. And they're like, well, okay. And I got a call while I was sitting there. And the call was from the chief of police that I had gone to before because I was, you know, I was worried about the situation. So about a year before the divorce started, I had gone and talked to him and been like, look, you know, she's gotten physical with me. I'm just trying to get her help. At this point but i just want to know that there's a safe place for me to get my son if things get out of hand because she's a bigger woman and i know exactly what what would happen if i tried to defend myself and he called me he's like hey just want to let you know uh your your ex-wife has filed papers saying that you're abusive oh nice yeah and uh, i was like okay my attorney's like oh that's the silver bullet <laughs> i was like what they're like yeah yeah the basically this is how people go about getting custody so you know i paid extra money to defend myself against that and to start the emergency custody stuff and but i mean that that entire weekend and being kicked out of my house for 2 weeks was just horrible and on top of that you know I had to leave I had four dogs at the time and I had to I could take Daisy with me because she's my service dog but the other three I had to leave there and I was told by the deputies my ex-wife had plans to come get them she was going to take care of I said okay hey as long as they're being taken care of you know I think it was a about 36 hours later, I got a call from a neighbor. And the dogs had not... My ex-wife hadn't come back. The dogs hadn't been let out. And I had to call the sheriff's office, have them go out there with my brother, and he got them and put them in a kennel. But they had they completely destroyed the house. Like, torn the doors open, like...
0: This is your former house.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, that that entire week was probably... The worst time of my life, but not knowing if my son was alive or dead that that first weekend was the roughest. I mean, I would have rather been in combat anytime than not know what was going on.
0: be away from your home, yeah, you'd be away from your son yeah. uh, and you know you'd even if she'd gotten in a car accident, you'd still grieve her, yeah, uh, especially if if uh, if your son was in that same car.
1: Yeah, and I mean at this point, uh, you know, we still have very—it's you know, not a good relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to co-parent, and it—it it feels like everything gets turned off against me. But with everything that's happened, and granted, the uh, she left in 2018 is when all this started if something were to happen to her, I would still grieve for my son's sake. Right. Because I know that would hurt him. Right. But,
0: yeah. Um, so that weekend was your uh, was your darkest moment. Uh, here's Here's the toughest question I've got. How did that darkest moment, how did it help you moving forward?
1: You know, one thing that I have gained from that moment and moving forward with the family courts and everything Uh you know i as a stay-at-home dad i was there from you know the time he got up to the time he went to bed i was the one getting up with him in the middle of the night the whole nine yards Uh and and i there were times i was like man i just really want a break but. But seeing how impermanent and just easy for that that structure to be lost, it's made me cherish being a dad so much more. And, and anytime you know, I, I'm remarried now. And we've got a blended family. I have a one stepson, and there's my my son from my previous marriage, and we have two little ones. And there's times I'm just like, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> but, you know, then I, I stop and think, like, I'm amazingly blessed to be in the middle of this. You know, I could I could have not made it out of Iraq. My, my son could have been killed while he was with his, my ex-wife. You know, anything could happen. But right now... A, in the middle of all of this, it's good. <laughs>
0: this is what you were hoping for. I, you know I told you the beginning of that story of when I was in that empty, silent, small apartment. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lady upstairs, she told me that you know whenever you, whenever we're being too noisy upstairs, just hit the ceiling with, uh, with a room stick, and that'll be our signal that we're being too noisy and we need to quiet it down. Mm -hmm. and honestly the highlight of my days was when they would sit down to dinner directly above my head and I could hear chairs move and I could hear a little bit of chatter and I knew that they were having the moment that I was not Mm -hmm. um and that I so badly wished for yeah. And the uh, last thing I was going to do is hit the uh hit the ceiling with a with a broomstick to stop that because that was my highlight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I think I think what I'm hearing from you is is very similar. Now you've got four munchkins and you're having all of that craziness going on in your house and you're like this is really hard but it's also kind of super awesome.
1: Yeah yeah I mean it's being a dad is one of the biggest blessings in the world and even even on those days when you're getting puked on and you got crap on you and you're just like oh you know there I still take a moment and I'm like hey you know what it's good
0: yeah that's that's awesome so you're uh you play super dad and uh, the wife goes off and uh, makes a nickel, I presume.
1: Yeah. She's, she works with the state parks. She uh, basically trains Rangers for programs and she does programs herself.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. One of the things that I run into occasionally with men is we feel like uh, if the wife out earns us, then we feel like we've lost a chunk of our man card. Does that ever happen to you?
1: Not really. Um, I mean, we make about the same. Uh-huh. But, you know, looking at the cost of childcare and all of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's, you know, we basically, if I went to work, I'd be paying for somebody else to just watch the kids.
0: Right. And that's expensive.
1: Yeah. But I mean... It, you know, I'm happy that I get to be involved with the kids' lives. Uh-huh. Growing up, my dad, he worked for the government and he would be gone, you know, a week or sometimes more. And he always made time for us, but at the same time, it was like, I wanted him more than he could he could be there. And, and I'm happy to be able to be this kind of rock for my kids.
0: Yeah, it's. I guess that's one step above what I consider to be the worst case is uh, the kid who who doesn't care if dad's at home or even worse is glad when dad's not home.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I think you recognize from growing up that it's important to you to have dad home. So you're, you're, I'm sure drawing a good deal of value from the fact that you're dad and you're home. Yeah. Um, so how old are you?
1: 43.
0: 43. So 43-year-old 43 Mark <clears throat> gets a DeLorean. Turns out it's a time machine. You get to go back to <clears throat> either the 39-year-old Mark and talk to him, or you get to go back to maybe Iraq and talk to, uh, to that Mark. <clears throat> Which one are you going to talk to, and what are you going to tell him?
1: That's hard to say because I, all the mistakes I've made along the way have brought me here. I think it would probably be the, the Iraq War one.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Just because right before we came home, the unit replacing us had a master sergeant. He was an older guy, and he'd already you know, been to combat and everything. And he pulled myself and the other medic aside. And he was like, look, this, the war was the easy part. Going home, that's the hard part. And, and I remember sitting in the tent later with my partner and just, we were kind of like, whatever, you know, we're going home. Like, we've survived. We, we made it. And, and, you know, he was right. He was absolutely right. And I I think I would tell myself, hey, believe him. Like, pay attention to what he's saying. Because this man, he's walked in our shoes. He knows what's going to happen. Like, you know, just brace yourself and, and get ready for a really rocky road.
0: And you've recognized that. And uh, at some point, and then you've become, you've allowed yourself to be healed. And of Mm -hmm. course, healing will never be perfect. And, you know, it'll never be complete, uh, I'm sure. But you've also allowed yourself to become the healer. Yeah. And I'm sure that's also part of your healing. Uh, Thank you for your service. I appreciate that hey thank you for listening to that podcast on analyzing. as the interviewer i don't go hunting for guys who have stuff and interview those people i go hunting for guys and then i find out what their stuff is these men are not unique they are only unique in that they are men if you are inspired by what you heard this is my invitation join us Uh, findmanalyzing.com m-a-n-a-l-i-z-i-n-g dot com. Check it out. Join a tribe. We can't help each other. We don't have to be alone. That's my invitation. Thank you, and welcome to the tribe.